Okay, here's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about plan B. When I say plan B, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? What comes to your mind? Backup plan. What else? Plan A didn't work. Yeah, something's not going like it's supposed to. Something's not going like we expected. So plan A, that ain't working. We need to go to plan B. All right? And that happens a lot in life. But what happens when you think you need a plan B spiritually? What happens when you're walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, living with the Lord, and things don't work out like you expected? Sometimes we want to come before the Lord. I don't know about you. I do. We want to come before the Lord and say, Hey, is there a plan B for my life? Uh, do you have that backup plan? Because this, this, this plan A that I've been working on is not going like I expected. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about today. If you look at your notes, it says this. God's grace is more than enough to remain loyal when there is no plan B. God's grace is more than enough to remain loyal when there is no plan B. Because the only thing worse than plan A not working is there not being a plan B. So then what do you do? You know, how do you respond? And here's the good news. That when we look at 1 Kings 19 we see that no matter what happens in Elijah's life, no matter what happens in his expectations, as we're going to see and we've been talking about, don't work out. The good news is, in verse 15 of chapter 19, the Lord tells him, go on your way. And then verse 19 says, Elijah went on his way. The good news is that Elijah... Hey, I'm working on this because we're getting into Elisha territory, so I have to work hard on that. Uh, so Elijah learned that God's grace is more than enough when there is no plan B. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go right back again. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 1 Kings 19. We're going to take one more sweep through this chapter because there's so much rich things in it. But here's what I'm going to do. I want you to have your Bibles open, and I have printed out the New American Standard in your notes because we're going to be looking at the text. We're going to do some deeper Bible study today. So don't freak out. Just put your thinking caps on, get your nose and your eyes and your Bible, and, and I want to show you how some of the beauties of this chapter and how they tie together. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this, in this chapter, but when we compare and do inductive study and look at some key points in the text, you're going to see some things coming together, at least I hope to. And by the time we're done, if you'll hang with me, I think you'll have some great application and some better insight to this chapter that, than you've had up till this time. So here, let's dive into this. First of all, we saw, uh, actually I guess it was three weeks ago, enough is enough is often due to the Lord not meeting our expectations. That's the first thing you got to understand. That's in the first five verses. I'm not going to reteach that. I just want you to get that in your mind, that enough is enough. We get to a place where we say, I've had it, I'm going to quit. It's often due to the Lord not meeting our expectations. And basically, the first five verses of this chapter is Elijah saying, 
I know the Lord's going to keep His covenant promises. I know I can trust the Lord, but I want Him to do it my way. I want Him to do it on my timetable. And I want Him to do it through me, or at least through the people I approve of, which right now is basically me. That's how he's thinking, okay? Well, Elijah was human just like us. Too often, and we've said this again and again, too often we expect the Lord to fulfill His promises our way on our timetable and to do it through us or through the people we choose. See, again, sometimes we expect Him to use us or we look out and we go, man, the Lord's going to use my spouse in this situation. The Lord's going to use my pastor in this situation. My Lord, the Lord's going to use this person in this situation. And then when that doesn't turn out like you expected, you can say, I've had it. I'm going to quit. The Lord has let me down. They've let me down. Now, we've tried to talk in this chapter whether Elijah's depressed whether he's just broken, disappointed, whether he's outright disobedient. Bible students debate that. What we do know for sure, he's running in the opposite direction. He's had enough, and he wants to die now. Now, how does the Lord respond? So last week, we saw, how does the Lord respond to the depressed and the disobedient? How does he respond to his servants? When they're broken and unbelieving. Listen, this is good news. Okay? He doesn't thump you on the head. He doesn't rebuke you and, 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 and say, Hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get back in there. Why well, expect this and come down? This is a beautiful thing. Number two, the Lord teaches us that His grace is more than enough. His grace is more than my enough. When I've had enough, God comes in and says, you know what, my grace is more than that, Chris. That's good news. That is good news. And that is the lesson of verses 5 through 18. So, I've given you this outline. I've made some adjustments to it because I think I have a better understanding of the chapter. But I want to show you some of the neat things within the chapter. So, let's look at this. How does the Lord show that His grace is more enough? Well, first of all, the Lord's provision of love in the wilderness. The first thing that happens in verses 5 through 8 is that the Lord, once again, provides for His servant. And He does it in the wilderness, and He does it in this supernatural way. He provides food and drink in the desert that looks like it's been prepared by human hands, and yet it's offered to Him by none other than the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Well, I shouldn't say Jesus, because He's not yet Jesus. He's the Christ, the Son of God. So, understand this. Even in the Old Testament, God's grace is always mediated through His Son. Even in the Old Testament, God's grace is always mediated. Now, it's not clear. It's not fleshed out. It's, not, it's literally not fleshed out. It's not incarnate yet. But isn't it beautiful that even in the Old Testament, we don't have this mean, angry, faraway God. He's Yahweh, and He cares for His covenant people. And so He sends His pre-incarnate Son to come all the way down and touch the discouraged prophet, to identify with Him in His brokenness, to nourish Him even in His disobedience. Isn't that good news? Can we get excited about that? 
Yeah, that's good news to know. That's that's the God we serve. And so here's what I want you to see is that uh, notice that the Lord says the second time. Look at verse 7. He nourishes him two times. The second time, the, the, the angel of the Lord says something interesting. Look at verse 7. Arise, eat, because the journey, that's what it is in the New American Standard. Anybody have anything different? The journey. The journey is too great for you. Now, here's what's cool. When he says the journey is too great for you, the word for too great is the same Hebrew word for enough. And he's saying, look, I get it. You've had enough. Because when you try to live for me and remain loyal for me in in your own power, it is too much for you. So he's connecting. Hey, I know this is too much because you ran before I told you to run. You ran without praying to me. You're on your own right now, and that is too much for you. Are you living your life without the Word? Are you living your life without prayer? I will promise you it will be too much for you. And then look at this. It says the journey. The Hebrew word for journey there or way is the Hebrew word derek. Okay? Just saying it in English. Derek. Now, this is interesting because the word for journey or way will be used again in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way or your journey. So, this whole passage is tied together. It begins with, your journey, your way is too much for you. Then it ends with, get back on your journey. So what happened in between? Now, here's what I want you to understand about this word, way or journey. Is that when you trace this word through the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, I gave you a bunch of references. The way is not merely a physical journey. The way is walking in the way of the Lord. The way is living a covenant, faithful life, believing the Lord, loving the Lord, and letting all your life be lived for the Lord on your way. Do you get the idea? And I believe that in this passage, the way is used in that way. Oh, that was bad, wasn't it? The way is used in that way. I think here's what he's saying. When he says, look, the journey is too much for you, he's not talking about the journey to Mount Horeb. Because when he gets to Mount Horeb, he says, what are you doing here? So he's not saying, hey, this is the direction I want you to go. What he's saying to you, living the covenant faithful life, remaining loyal is too much for you in your own resources. And then once the Lord has taught him that lesson, he says, now get back on your way of living for me. Are you with me? Now, that's just that's cool stuff right there. That's a lesson right there. Listen to Deuteronomy 5. I'm going to read some of these passages in Deuteronomy. Because so often it talks about turning aside from the way of the Lord. Now, 
had Israel done this? Yeah, this is, a, this is a Elijah's complaint. They've turned away from living for you, the way of the Lord. Well, guess what? Elijah, he's turned away from living for the Lord. He has gone in the opposite direction. So listen to some of these passages. Deuteronomy 5.33 You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Well, guess what? Elijah is running from the promised land. He's not walking in the way of the Lord, I believe. He's not being faithful right now. Deuteronomy uh, 9.12 Then the Lord said to Moses, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you've brought out from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way. Uh, 9.16 You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Uh, Deuteronomy 11.28 but you turned aside from the way which I commanded you. Deuteronomy 13.5, it talks about killing false prophets who seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Well, guess what? That's why Elijah is disappointed. He's disappointed because, Lord, you haven't purged. You haven't fulfilled your promises like I expected you to do. So I could go on. So what's interesting here, I think, is the Lord's telling us, He's telling Elijah, look, living for me, walking in the way of the Lord, is too much for you on your own resources. And at the end of this story, He says, my grace is more than enough, now go back on your way of living for me. So, having been strengthened for the Lord... Elijah proceeds 200 more miles to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And note, though, in the text, if you look at this, uh, verse uh, verse 8, it doesn't say that the Lord told him to go there. Some uh, interpreters think that he did because he gave him strength, and in the power of the food, he did 40 days and 40 nights wandering in the wilderness. I don't think the Lord strengthened him to wander in the wilderness. The Lord is strengthening him to get back and live for him where he had called him to go. But he uses that strength to go to Mount Sinai because he, I think he wants God to do for him some of the things that God had already done there for Moses. All right? So we'll, if, if you're totally lost, hang with me. Here's what happens on, when he gets there. He goes 200 miles, and he makes it to Mount Sinai, and here's what happens. The Lord's demonstration of faith on the mountain. The Lord's demonstration of faith on the mountain. Now, I don't think anybody will notice this, but I'll throw it out here anyway. The last couple of weeks, I've said it's the Lord's revelation of faith. I just changed that to the Lord's demonstration because as I dug into this more, the and, and this is the main point of the lesson. The Lord doesn't end up giving him new revelation. I think he went there for plan B. Reveal to me plan B because Lord, I hate to break it to you, plan A ain't working. So he goes and he wants plan B to be revealed. But what 
what the Lord does in His grace is says, I'm not going to give you new revelation. I'm going to give you a demonstration of faith in what I've already revealed. So that's why, as accurately as I try to teach, just like any good Bible teacher, I, I don't always get it right every Sunday. You just got to keep going back to the text. You got to keep looking at the text. So let's keep moving. Here's what happens. So basically, he doesn't give any new revelation. So let's break it down. Twice the Lord asked Elijah, verses 9 and 13, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's why I don't think the Lord didn't lead him there to then ask him, What are you doing here? Elijah wanted there, he wanted plan B to reveal. And the Lord's basically saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? You remember Elijah, your name? Yahweh is my God. What are you doing here? That should be enough for you. And so, look at this. Both times, the, exact, the same question is preceded by the word of the Lord coming to him after he had already, already run away and wanted to die. So, look at verse 9. Then he came there, and your English says, then he came there to a cave, but the Hebrew emphasizes the cave. And we can't say for sure, but I believe that this is what's, what in English we know as the cleft of the rock that Moses was hid in. Well, the cleft of the rock is a cave. Okay? So he has gone, I believe, to the very cave where Moses first saw the revelation of the Lord, first received the covenant from the Lord, and he's like, plan A ain't working. You need to give me, Elijah, plan B. All right? So he's in the cave, and he lodged there. Now notice, he's in the cave, and he's hanging out there, and the text says, behold. Now, some translations like the NIV horribly fail in never translating this word. What a loss. Because it's indicating to you something has just happened. And what it is, the word of the Lord has been revealed to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then, notice, the Lord asked him a second time in verse 13. There's all this stuff that goes on. We'll talk about it. But notice, in verse 13, it came about, that when Elijah heard it, and we'll talk about what he heard, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. So the first time, he's in the cave, huddled in the dark, and the word of the Lord comes to him in the huddled darkness of the cave, what are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that good that the word of the Lord can reach you in the pit of your darkness? Isn't that good? He'll speak to you. But then he says, Elijah, come out and stand before me. Elijah doesn't, and all these things happen that we're going to talk about. Finally, Elijah Elijah hesitantly comes to the mouth of the cave. And there, notice, behold. Uh Uh-oh, what do we know is going to happen? The voice of the Lord speaks to him. Now, those are two different. One word is for the word of the Lord. That's one Hebrew word. The other word is for the voice of the Lord. They both mean the same thing. God is speaking. Behold indicates that, right? Behold, He's speaking. Now, what's the big deal about this question? Let's look at it. Notice in your notes. The Lord was holding Elijah accountable 
for his present occupation and his present location. What are you doing? This is not the occupation I call. I didn't call you to be a cave dweller. I called you to be a prophet in Samaria. What are you doing? This is not your occupation. And what are you doing here? This is not the right location for you. Now, you say, why are you making that big deal? Well, because there's all sorts of opinions on whether the Lord led him there, whether he ought to be there. I'm giving you indications why I believe he's in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. But God is gracious, and he's holding them accountable. So listen to this. Here's, you know, you're like, okay, this is way too deep. I need something practical. Okay, I'll give you something practical. You're not, you know, be careful of asking for the practical. What are you doing here? Are you doing what the Lord has called you to do? Are you in the place the Lord has called you to be? What are you doing here? That's not a bad question to ask every moment of our lives. What am I doing here? Am I living in the covenant way or am I doing my own thing? All right, so I hope that helps you. So here, number two. You, so he's in this cave and at the beginning he, he asks the question and at the end he asks the same question. Why? Because in between there's no new revelation. So that's number two there. The Lord is not intentionally revealing any new revelation or information to Elijah on Mount Sinai. That's like the place of revelation. That's why I'm here. I'm here to get plan B. And the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And all I'm trying to get across to you is sometimes when God doesn't do things as we expect, we want new revelation from Him. We want a new game plan from Him. And you know what the Lord's saying to us? What are you doing here? I've already told you what to do. Stay in the game. Okay, so let's keep, let's keep moving. What are you doing here? So let's look at verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. Elijah, as I said, is in the same cave that Moses received the revelation of the Lord's glory when the Lord passed by, and we're going to see he's going to pass by for Elijah too. But this time, the Lord comes to the, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in this cave, and instead of giving him new revelation, he just says, What are you doing here? Now look at verse 10. Elijah's answer to the Lord begins and ends with a focus on himself. Hey, I have been zealous for you. I have been jealous for you. And then he ends with, and now they're trying to kill me. I'm the only one, and now they're trying to get me. And then notice in the, in, in the middle, all he does is bring accusation. He's not there to intercede. There's no intercession for Israel. He's not saying, oh, these guys are so apostate. Lord, could you intervene? No, he's just there to complain. And number two, he's not there offering supplication for himself. He's not saying, Lord, it's too much. I, I, I need your resources. He's simply there saying, look, it's all come down to me and they want to kill me. I'm ready to quit. He's turning in his resignation. There's no supplication. There's no intercession. He's turning in his, sup, his resignation. So look at verses 11 and 12. 
Now, how is the Lord going to respond to this? He is so gracious. He is so gracious. Look how he responds to him in verses 11 and 12. Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. He's speaking to this guy huddled in his cave of depression, huddled in his cave of despair, and he says, Elijah, go and stand before me on the mountain. Now, why is that important? Where have we heard this word stand before the Lord before? We heard it when he first introduced himself in chapter 17, verse 1. In chapter 17, verse 1, when Elijah confronted Ahab, he was so bold and he was so prophetic, he stands before Ahab and he says, Before the Lord whom I stand, I swear it's not going to rain. The second time we see it is in chapter 18. When Obadiah doesn't want to do the mission that Elijah wants for him wants him to do, and Elijah says, I swear by the Lord before whom I stand, I will show up, you will not die, go tell Ahab I'm here. So here you got this guy who boldly fulfills his mission, and each time he says, I, I, I swear by the God I stand before, now he's huddled in the cave, and what is the Lord calling him to do? Elijah, you got to get back in the game. Come and stand before me. And guess what? Elijah doesn't move. He stays huddled in the cave. So here's what's interesting. He's huddled in the cave... And the text says the Lord still passes by. But he misses it because he's in the cave. The Lord passes by. So here's the big question. Is the Lord going to reveal to him plan B? Is the Lord going to give him added revelation? Is the Lord going to give him new revelation? Because this is why he's there. But is this what the Lord's going to do? So let's look at it. Look at verses 11 and 12. He said to him, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, oh, there's that word. The Lord is, there's revelation taking place. The Lord is passing by. And notice what happens. A great and strong wind was rending the mountain and breaking in pieces at the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. So what's going to happen in this passage is all the kind of mighty signs that associate, that happened years ago when Moses was in that cave, and yet the Lord's not in the signs. So the wind comes and breaks the mountain, but the Lord's not in the wind. And then after the wind comes a mighty earthquake that shakes the mountain, just like in Moses' day, but the Lord's not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake comes a mighty fire, just as it did in Moses' day. But the Lord's not in the fire. And then comes the famous phrase, and then there was a still, in the King James, a still, small voice. And that's what we want to figure out. What is the still, small voice? New American Standard says, After the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. Okay, I could say funny things about that. I will not. Here's the deal. A still small voice, a gentle blowing. This is a hard, ver this is a hard, uh, hard phrase to translate, but I think it's the key to the chapter. So let's look at it. This was more than you want to know. I understand that. 
but at least it shows you there's difficulty sometimes translating, and that's why you need to compare uh, different translations. So, the phrase in the Hebrew has three words. There's a noun that can be translated a sound that you hear or a voice that is speaking. There's a second Hebrew noun that can be translated as silence or the stillness, like the stillness of a waves, or a still silence. You could It, it kind of has both ideas in the word. The third is an adjective that means thin, weak, or small, just kind of, just like barely there, just barely there. Now, how do you translate this? Well, if you look at English translations, there's at least five ways it's been translated. First of all, the New American Standard has a sound, instead of a voice, a sound of gentle blowing. To be honest with you, I don't know how they got that. It focuses on physical wind, doesn't it? It's like the sound of a wind. But neither one of those words mean wind. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I just I don't see that. The ESV has the sound, again, not a voice, a sound of a low whisper. So they take that idea of si- stillness, silence, to be low and thin and weak to be a whisper. So it's the sound of, you know, you're, you're not hearing voice, you're not hearing words, you're just hearing a whispering, like the Lord is whispering, okay? So the emphasis is on whispering. The first one, the emphasis is on wind. In the CSB, they do a good job of dealing with all three words, and they say a voice, which is a soft whisper. And that's pretty much what the King James says, a still, small voice. You know, and, and basically, to be honest with you, the King James, that's like a literal translation that doesn't help you much. Still, yeah, that's what the word means. Small, yeah, that's what the word means. What is a still, small voice? Well, most English translations say a still, small voice is a a whispering. Okay? So the emphasis on either the sound of whisper or the voice of whispering. The New Revised Standard Version has this translation. A sound of thin or sheer silence. And I think that's the best illustration, the best translation. There's a fifth translation. Scholars can get really crazy. I won't bore you with this horribly difficult article. This guy says, it's the sound of a roaring, thundering voice. So do you see where we are in this? I mean, it is all over the place. Don't worry about number five. Just, I think it's number four. Here's why. Why do I think it's the sound? Now, first of all, we've already seen... I've seen fire, and I've seen rain. We just saw earth, wind, and fire, and now we got the sound of silence. I just want to throw that in. Okay, see, don't say I don't bring humor to my lessons. Why do I think this is the sound of sheer or thin silence? Because it emphasizes all three words. A lot of English translations just say gentle whispering. But there's three words here, and they each have meaning. Secondly, it agrees with the only other two places in Scripture where this word for, si- uh, uh, thi- for, uh, for silence and stillness. You can go look those up. They convinced me. Voice and stillness, they convinced me, comparing Scripture. But I also think it's suggested by the fact, number three, there's no behold before this sound. That's why I've taken this time. Notice, 
When the Lord, when the word of the Lord came in the previous verse, it said, Behold. In the very next verse, when it says the voice of the Lord, it says, Behold. There's no behold before this. Because the Lord isn't revealing. He's not speaking. He's not even whispering. It's the sound of sheer silence. And I think this best fits with the next verse. So let's look at verse 13. It came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance. He's still not bold enough to go out there and he knows the Lord is out there so he wraps his face in the mantle because he doesn't want to see the glory of the Lord and die. But isn't it interesting when Moses saw the glory back in Exodus he would unveil his face. So again, I think Elijah knows I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And if I just charge out there into the glory of the Lord, I'm toast. So he wraps his mantle and he just goes to the entrance of the cave. Now, why did he do that? Notice it says it came about when Elijah heard it. Now, one of the arguments against the idea of sheer silence is, how do you hear silence? Has anyone ever heard sheer, profound silence before? Have you? Yeah. Have you ever heard, especially, have you ever heard sheer, profound silence after the roar of a mighty storm? After a roaring wind? after a loud, crushing earthquake, after roaring fire. If you've ever been in a tornado, it sounds like a what? A freight train. And then it's gone, and then you come out of your cave, your, your place of protection, and what is there? You hear it. There is a profound, sheer silence. So here's what happens. He's expecting plan B to be revealed. And sure enough, here comes the wind, the fire, the earthquake, just like in Moses' day. Stay with us on audio, on the net. We're just listening to profound, sheer silence. What's going on? And he comes out there, and what does the Lord say to him? New revelation? No, what does the Lord say to him? What are you doing here, Elijah? See, you came for the show. You came for the revelation of plan B. But Elijah, there is no plan B. Yeah, but Lord's not going like I expected. That's okay. There is no plan B. But Lord, I want a plan B. Silence. The Lord... Lord, I want you to judge these people now. Silence. The Lord, Lord, I want you to get me out of this prophetic calling. This is hard being a witness in times of apostasy. Silence. There is no plan B. Isn't that cool? Now, also, why does this help? And, and I don't want to take long on this. Unfortunately, that King James, New King James, beloved phrase, a still small voice ironically, has been used in application for you to listen for a still small voice and for you to listen for new revelation from the Lord. But that's not even what it means, and that's the opposite of what the Lord's doing here. 
Listen, when you are wanting to hear something new from the Lord, you get back in this book because there is no plan B. When you're wanting that still small voice to get you out of here, you get back and hear what God has already revealed, the promises He's always already made to you. Isn't that good stuff? I guess it is if we apply it. So, drawn by the sound of profound silence, he goes and he stands. So, he's re, re-upping in his prophetic calling. Okay, I'm standing. I'm hesitant. I'm at the mouth of the cave. But at least I'm standing before the Lord. And the Lord then says to him, what are you doing here? And so, here's the point in your notes. There was no rev- new revelation because there is no plan B. There was no new revelation because there is no plan B. So the Lord asked him the question twice. How is Jug going to answer the question? You know what he does? He answers in the exact same way again. I'm the only one, or I've been jealous for you. They are apostates, and they're trying to kill me. So it looks like, even though God has been gracious... Elijah has not fully learned the lesson yet because he's still saying the same thing. So here's, but I do think Elijah learned this lesson. Number three, there's no plan B when it comes to being loyal in times of apostasy. There is no plan B when it comes to being loyal in times of apostasy. We see this in verses 15 through 19. And here's what I want to say to you. Even though Elijah said the exact same thing and seemingly was not changed, the good news is, in verse 15, the Lord says, Go and return on your covenant way. Return and go be loyal. And here's the good news. Look at verse 19. So so he departed. So even though he stood steadfast in what his answer was, in this weird passage... It seems like Elijah learned that God's grace is more than enough because there's no plan B. Now, let me give you two things, and then I'll have to let you go. The first is this. The Lord's Lord's recommission of hope. So, he says, Elijah, come and stand before me. And he says, look, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason. Now, get back in the game. Here's what I view this like. It's like a quarterback calling a timeout. The coach sent him in with the play. The quarterback's there, and he's like, whoa, I'm going to get cream. Timeout. He goes to the sideline, and he says, coach, we need a new play. This ain't going to work. We're getting killed out there. And the coach says, I'm the coach. You're the quarterback. There is no new play. You don't get to call an audible. Get back in the game. And so he gets back in the game. Now, here's what he does to him. Elijah was human like us, but the Lord is in charge, not us. Okay? The Lord is in charge, not us. We may want him to do it our way on our timetable through us or through the people we want him to. But here's the thing. The Lord's in charge, and he'll use who he wants, and he'll do it when he wants and he'll do it the way he wants. Our job is not to look for new revelation, but to trust and obey what he's already revealed. That's not easy to do, is it? But aren't you glad 
that His grace is more than enough to help you do that? Aren't you glad that when we fail to that, He doesn't destroy us, but He comes and He sends His mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, to minister to us? Aren't you glad that He's long-suffering with us and He'll get us back in the game? But ultimately, there is no plan B. So, a mission is going to be given to him. I still have a mission for you, so stop resigning. Resignation rejected. I still have a mission for you to do, but I will also work through others that I choose to use. It's not just about you. And he's going to have him uh, commission three other people. We'll talk about that next week. Number two, a prediction is made. Elijah... My divine judgment's going to fall, but it's going to fall through who I choose. It's going to fall through how I choose and when I choose. So, see, I think he wanted judgment to fall. Elijah wanted judgment to fall. And the Lord's saying, look, it's coming, but it comes on my timetable. And it comes through the people I choose. But be assured, it comes. Now, why does the God delay like that? Because he's a compassionate, merciful. The revelation to Moses, I am a God of long-suffering and mercy and compassion. Did these people deserve to be destroyed decades ago? Yes. And yet it's going to be literally decades before the judgment comes. But understand... The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Listen, if you're living in disobedience, consequences are coming. And don't think the delay is that God is asleep or you're getting away with it. You're not. I'm not. None of us get away with it. So you run to this merciful God. Confess your sins. And get the blood to cover you before the judgment comes. And then a provision is promised. My sovereign grace is long-suffering with this disloyal people. But get this, I'm going to choose to preserve a loyal remnant until the day when all my promises will be fulfilled. This is verse 18. Look at verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What he's saying is, Elijah, you're not the only one, because in my grace, I preserve a remnant. Listen, Israel's going to be taken into captivity. There is devastating judgment. Men, women, and children are going to be slaughtered by your enemies, because you have forsaken me. But understand this, in my grace... There's a remnant of 7,000. And if there's a remnant now, someday the whole nation is going to be saved. See, that's the good news. As long as there's a remnant. Now, let me tell you this. Look, look at this last point, and then we'll end with this. The Lord's remnant always points forward to the future final fulfillment. So what he's saying to Elijah is, you think there needs to be a plan B. You don't need a plan B. Plan A is working. There is a remnant. And someday, every promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, here's what's the cool thing. In the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, that promise is made to us as Christians. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. 
to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. There is no plan B. Because in God's grace, plan A will be fulfilled when it seems it's not going the way you expected. But Romans 8 leads into Romans 9 through 11. And in Romans 11, the good news is this. Paul picks up this promise to Elijah about a remnant. And he says, look, I know we're in the church age. And I know the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And I know the majority of the nation of Israel is not accepting their Messiah in the person of Jesus. But understand this, within the church, there is a remnant of Israel. There's Jewish believers. Paul was one of them. And here's the good news. If there's a little remnant, then that means there's a future fulfillment for the whole nation. And so he's taken this story to say, you know what? A lot of Jewish people are still looking for a plan B because they're like, where are you? But plan A is being fulfilled, just not in the way they expected. Instead of a mighty king, it's a suffering servant. And so they have hardened their hearts. The Lord has hardened their hearts in order to bring in the church age, to bring in the Gentile and Jew into one body of Christ. But that doesn't mean that Israel has been set on the shelf forever. No, there is a remnant within the church. And one day, when Christ comes back at the second coming, the nation will repent. The promises will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom and then the new creation. And it's all going to be fulfilled. But in the meantime, we go through hard times. So here's what I'm saying to you. Don't look for plan B. Don't listen to people that say, hey, I've got, God's doing a new thing. Let me tell you how to do it. Pray this way. Do this ritual. Go to this cultish church. No, there's nothing new. It's right here. It's just right here. Are you with me? So don't when when when, plan, when it seems like plan God's plan A is not working for you, don't seek a plan B. God's grace through His Word is more than enough to get you through what you're going through. Boy, I hope this. I, I know that this is hard stuff to teach. I hope it was an encouragement to you. I've been there. I've been in the cave. Have you been in the cave? Yeah, yeah. We've been in the cave. And. You know, the good news is God gives you grace to do nothing but kind of come and stand before the Lord and be reminded, I don't have anything new for you because what I've already given to you, my grace is sufficient. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm glad that Elijah was a man, a human, just like us, because we can relate. And we get discouraged. Depression is real. We become an unbelieving, believing people, and that's not a place where we can stay. And so, Lord, you come to us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come and you touch us, you encourage us, and you remind us, my grace is sufficient, my plan is being fulfilled, and one day, when Jesus comes for the second time, the nation of Israel will repent, 
and all of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. And we as the church will be there as well. Every promise will have been fulfilled for us. And together with the people of Israel, we will be under your rule and your reign. And Lord, in the meantime, help us to remember your grace is sufficient. Help us to remember not to seek for a plan B, but trust and obey obey plan A. I pray this for each person here. I pray it for myself. I pray it for our families. I pray it for our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.